You're listening to Clouser on Business. Thanks for coming back. I'm Clouser, your host. Glad you're with us today. Our topic today is on developing a sound marketing strategy, and it's titled Formulating a Real Market Strategy Versus Wasting Real Money. Ask 10 people what makes up a market strategy, and you will get 10 different answers. Some think throwing up a pretty website with a touch touch of uh, SEO defines it. Others will speak about their social media programs are an e-commerce initiative they have implemented and call that their marketing strategy. Sad thing is they probably have spent precious dollars to get these into place and they continue not to have a true market strategy. Well, how does a company develop a solid market strategy and what elements or ingredients should be included in it? What should be considered and as important, what should it not include? I'm delighted to have Jerry Vieira of QMP Group with me today to discuss developing a market strategy that will work and if properly implemented should help grow your revenue. Hey, well, welcome to the podcast, Jerry. How are you, Clouser? Hey, I'm doing really well. Um, thanks for coming on. Hey, uh, tell, tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and how you've become a source of information and guidance to your clients. Well, the story is kind of a sad story, but uh, it uh, worked out okay in the end, I guess. Um, I started my career as an engineer, which some people might say is sad enough, but uh, I worked for a long time as a design engineer and a manufacturing engineer and was given a lot of responsibility at a very early age for a team of people that eventually kind of grew to about a dozen people. And uh, I remember the event pretty clearly. Uh, one morning as I walked in, we had our offices down on the manufacturing floor and all of our team had become pretty good friends with the uh, blue-collar workers that were assembling these electronic uh, devices. And uh, suddenly there was a layoff announced, and I saw a lot of these people kind of walk out the door. And back in the day when that occurred, there wasn't a lot of safety net, and there certainly wasn't 52 weeks of unemployment, and there wasn't COBRA. And it struck me like a ton of bricks that um, this was a very, very sad event. And uh, with a little bit of research and talking to people, I discovered that the reason the layoff occurred was that the division had become non-competitive because someone in the marketing group had just made a dumb decision about channel to market. And it was a decision that could have been fixed but hadn't been fixed. And two things struck me uh, at that moment. First, that a good market strategy was so critical to the success of uh, a business and all of the people and shareholders and constituents that it that it affected and the second thing was that um, in the future I was going to learn how to design good sound market strategies and try to avoid the kind of pain that I was watching unfold before me that day so I went back to graduate school studied strategy rather intensely and developed uh, my own methodology for doing that. How was that transition for you? I mean how do you how do you go from being an, an engineer to a, you know, now a market strategist, so to speak? Well, it, uh, it might not have been as hard as one would think. Uh, certainly the credibility wasn't there, but uh, I had developed this process uh, after graduate school uh, while I was still working as an engineer. And I met um, somebody who became a mentor of mine who I shared it with, and he believed in it, and he believed in me, and so he gave me an opportunity uh, to uh, become his market strategist. I moved to Dallas to do that, and, and um, from then it was pretty straightforward. At a future date, I was uh, laid off, a convenient term, 
from the company, and I had my process and my methodology already developed. I had contacts in the industry, and so uh, it was a rather smooth transition. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so that's where the uh, formation of your uh, your group, the QMP group, uh, yeah. was established. Yeah, it comes out of uh, QMP stands for Quality Marketing Process, and as you know, uh, Klauser, um, it doesn't st- stand for Quiet Modest Person. It stands for <laughs> Quality Marketing Process. <laughs> although, that, you, although you are, <laughs> yeah, right, and and so it. Uh, it, it comes out of the formulation that if you do the process right, you'll get the right outcomes. Uh, and it comes out of my engineering background as, uh, as a, a quality specialist as well. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, uh, to our topic today, uh, two simple wor- uh, words, uh, market and strategy, seems pretty simple. Uh, and the premise of our discussion today is from what I've heard you share to me several times, Jerry, is before you spend the money, develop your market strategy. So where does a company begin the process? Well, you have to believe that you have a good value quotient. Now, you notice I didn't say value proposition. Value proposition is really the kind of the benefit statement or the benefits part. But when anyone buys anything, whether you're buying computers or you're buying microphones or you're buying cell phones, you're really balancing the value and the benefits that you receive against the value of the costs associated with obtaining whatever that service or product is. And so it's important to understand that it really is a quotient. It's the benefits divided by the costs. And and it's also important to recognize it's not only economic benefits. I work mostly in B2B, but there is a series of benefits and there are a series of costs. There's the economic benefits and costs associated. There's the um, emotional benefits and emotional costs. There are the political uh, benefits and the political costs. And finally, there is the physical benefits and the physical cost. And each individual has a balance of how they perceive those factors, both on the benefits side and on the cost side. And so the most important thing that you have to do is be convinced and test that you have a valid value quotient. See, and, and they, all, you hear young people say, I'll never use math. And there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? Hey, so do you, uh, have you found that you uh, have a... Uh, niche uh, industry that you like, or do you work uh, across all industries? Well, the, um, it's not so much the industry as the situation. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. When uh, my children were very young, actually babies, my wife and I went to Cape Cod to visit my son uh, on a vacation, and my son immediately spiked a fever, and we found a doctor uh, in this little town on Cape Cod and brought him to the doctor, and we walked into his home, actually, in his examining room, and he was looking at the baby, and he said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Vieira, I want to just assure you that uh, I'm a geriatric physician. I only deal with old people, but I imagine all of the parts are the same you know, <laughs> yes. as he was examining the baby. And, and that's true for business, too. The parts are the same. You have a market segment. You have a value quotient. You have a differentiation. You have a, a channel to market. And all businesses are basically the same. Mm-hmm. Hey, so when you go into a new client, uh, how do you determine if a company has a viable market strategy or a market strategy at all, I guess? Well, I guess the first thing I look at is have they proven their value quotient? Does it make sense? Does it make sense for enough customers that are under-satisfied in a particular market segment? And does that market segment have momentum? If they've got that figured out, it does a lot. Um, And so the differentiated position, the market momentum, the value quotient, 
and the value also that the channel provides. If there's, if there's one thing that um, we've learned since Amazon came on board, that unless the channel to market is providing value, there's going, someone's going to find a better way to service the customers. Mm -hmm. um, Amazon put um, bookstores almost out of business and then we're able to uh, leverage that, uh, the automation of the internet and delivery services to, uh, to grow into what it is today. Mm -hmm. So you can never be satisfied with your current situation. You always have to be understanding that the market is changing and there are certain factors that will throw the balance of the value quotient off. So you have to be right on top of that. Mm -hmm. So the first, the first thing is, is there a valid value quotient for a large enough population of a market momentum, of a market with momentum, is the differentiated position and the channel value proposition, are those, are those meaningful? Yeah, and, and so the type of clients that you're working with, uh, don't, don't want to ask a silly question here, but they would, would they even understand what that is? I, I would assume that if you were working for a larger company that had a, de a marketing department or whatever with educated and experienced people, maybe they might understand that. But uh, for those smaller businesses, uh, do, you, do you find that they struggle? I think what, what most companies uh, that don't get it struggle with is their own belief system and their unwillingness to look at things objectively. Uh, certainly this, this methodology has worked with, and these concepts have worked with companies from uh, startup to $300 million to divisions of billion-dollar companies, there isn't anyone that hasn't gotten the concept, hasn't understood the concept. I don't ever remember. There are people who have been recalcitrant about understanding what the market was telling them, uh, and, and in face of all of that evidence, they still proceeded with unwise decisions and formulated unwise market mm -hmm. strategies as a result. Yeah. So uh, do, you, do you find that... Uh, business owners, management people really understand what their market is. I know that uh, you, know, you and I have uh, been been to breakfast a few times, and uh, you've got a uh, an analogy with a canoe. Uh, can you I, I, that that really helped me? Can you share that with uh, our audience? Sure. Um, and at, at the simplest um, in, the, in the simplest form, you can think of the analogy or the metaphor of a canoe, uh, rowers, and a stream. Let's assume that the rowers are your marketing and sales team and your design engineering team that's putting out new products. They're your people, they're trained, they're talented, they're skilled, and they're strong. And the canoe is the product you have. And you're very proud of the canoe, and you even paint it beautifully. You give it chrome, you give it a nice logo and a nice web page and a nice brochure. Uh, and then you bring, you have your people carry this canoe over to the stream, and the stream is bone dry. There's no water. No one is going anywhere. Your stream is the market momentum. It's much easier to succeed when there's water in the stream and it's flowing uh, substantially. So it's important, the very first thing that's important is to make sure that if you've got a strong uh, value quotient, value proposition, that you put it in a stream with momentum. Because in the end, even uh, a person who can't swim will make progress down a stream tied to a log. You know, so talent is you know kind of overrated when you're looking for markets. What you need to do is you need to get a boat into a good stream. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think that's true, what about all of the people that uh, were able to add capacity to overheated demand when uh, the, the for those of you who remember this far back, the VHS came out. 
every uh, strip mall had a, its own VHS store. And then over time, uh, the momentum of the market slowed down and the differentiated position became most important. And so you had Blockbuster and, and uh, the other um, VHS tape rental places. And then the delivery channel changed. It became online streaming. And so not keeping up with the change in the maturity of the market will not help you once the initial momentum is lost. Yeah. He Heidi and I were talking on, our, uh, on a previous podcast here uh, uh, this past week about the same, you know, kind of the same thing with uh, Kodak. You know, they developed the uh, digital camera and I think they got they misunderstood what industry they were really in. They, I think they felt like they were only in the film, you know, the, you know, photography film business when actually they were probably in a, you know, obviously a camera or wider. And there uh, are there are mechanisms for um, for adjusting and re-energizing growth when the market is mature. For example, in the 1990s, pretty much everyone that wanted a car and needed a car had a car. And yet, uh, even though the, the growth of the auto industry had slowed significantly, someone figured out that they could repackage the same steel, the same glass, the same leather, the same electronics, the same engines, and, and reconfigure it into something called an SUV. And the SUV tapped into an undersatisfied need that most people didn't even really know they had. And it was able to do that at a higher average selling price, a higher growth rate, and higher margins. So repackaging is one way to reset a slow growth, uh, a slow growth market. Mm -hmm. Hey, so what uh, components should be included in, in the market strategy? Well, uh, there are four. Value quotient, the uh, differentiation, uh, the channel strategy, and the fourth thing is uh, the market momentum. Those are the four parts that have to be uh, existent. Value quotient, differentiation, channel, value, and uh, aim, all of that aimed at a good market with momentum. Can, can you touch on each one of those just in a sentence or two, what, what those would uh, uh, include? or? Sure. Market momentum is, is usually driven by one of three things. It's uh, driven by uh, economic momentum, uh, which means that the economy is good, and it might be very segment-specific, but if the economic uh, factors in different markets uh, flow differently and are out of phase with one another. But what you're concerned about is just your segment, so you want to make sure that the factors there, the economic factors, uh, are beneficial. Uh, the second thing, uh, in terms of the, um, the, the value quotient, that's pretty easy to, to figure out, and the way you figure it out is with testing, finding out what people really value. You know, uh, Peter Drucker said, uh, you can give me, uh, back, back in the day, a mm -hmm. million dollars worth of market research or the day in the kitchen with a housewife. He was a man of his own times. You know? mm -hmm. uh, and what he was saying uh, was that if I can understand the customer experience, then I can start to identify the unmet subconscious needs and challenges that they go through. Mm -hmm. That helps identify the real value quotient because it taps into all of those things. Um, the differentiated position means eventually everybody, uh, if you have a good value proposition uh, it will, and good profitability, it will attract competitors. You have to find out what uh, your differentiated position is going to be in the end. We all know that even today in, the, in a market that's as saturated as the auto market is, 
Uh, Volvo still holds the lead in terms of having the differentiated position perception of, uh, of safety. And then the channel provides. So you have to look at what value the channel is providing. You know, people make decisions all the time about channel thinking, okay, this is going to give us an opportunity to get wide distribution of our product and get our name and our brand out there. But all of that doesn't work if the value proposition that the channel provides is misaligned with what the value the customers want to receive from the channel is. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. Sure does. And, uh, my, you know, my next question is going to relate to my uh, junior high uh, grade card from uh, school. But um, you use, I know uh, you use a military uh, analogy to help uh, instruct and guide your uh, your clients sometimes, and they're made up of three F's and three D's. Now, right. that's that's when the similarity with my grade card. Your grade card, yeah. <laughs> you, you want to... It's easy to remember that one. <laughs> exactly. You want to elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. Uh, you know, when I was doing the research into the, the market strategy science, um, some of it was done by GE and the Strategic Planning Institute, and then uh, things about the adoption of innovation, research about the adoption of innovation was compiled by a guy named Everett Rogers in his book, it's a beautiful book, it's called uh, The Diffusion of Innovations. But as I was going through that, I realized that, you know, 80 years of modern market research and strategy concepts really mimic what the military has learned over 5,000 or more years of history. Um, and so there are really fundamental strategies, and I'm going to give you the kind of the military versions of that and then explain the marketing versions of that. First of all, there's a frontal assault where you attack the competition immediately. And because, you know, here's the point. The point is, is that, you know, companies are um, continually battling for market share, which is basically the ground. Uh, the military is doing the same thing, and they're battling for the ground. Uh, so there's a frontal assault. There's fragmenting the enemy. There's flanking, which is uh, coming around the sides. And uh, there's, it's the three Fs, and the three Ds are defending, setting up a defensive position, departing, leaving because the, the field is not in your favor, or just developing over time, quietly, uh, out of the sight of the enemy. So there are three Fs, frontal assault, fragment, flank, and the three Ds are defend, depart, and develop. Now, a frontal assault on the market is just an attack, an overall get our name out there, spend as much as you can, advertise. That typically wastes a lot of resources. And in fact, what the research says is that um, whether it's in um, marketing and business or whether it's in the military, it takes anywhere from three to six times the resources to overcome a defended position in a frontal assault than to use one of the fragment and flank. Uh, strategies. Can I ask you a question there? Sure. So uh, with some of the clients that you've worked with or just in, gen in general, uh, you know, I guess that would, that would probably be prevalent. People think that we just got to do that right. and not really put the thought into what you're, what you're about to share. Right. And it's particularly um, prevalent in companies that have the next great idea. They believe that a frontal assault on the market, and it's very hard to dissuade an inventor or an entrepreneur that his idea, while it's good, really would have its best chance of success if it were focused on a subsegment of the market or a segment of the market where the value quotient was compelling. To establish a foothold there, create dominance, and that becomes a strong position you can defend while you then go after other subsegments of the market mm -hmm. rather than. Uh, 
diluting your, your market presence. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of the, the frontal assault. Fragment means segmentation, looking at market segments. Flanking means finding ways to differentiate your product. Defending, departing, and developing are, are all straightforward translated from the military to the to the market, to the business world. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, changing uh, direction here a little bit. So, uh, do the members of the sales team play a role in developing the market strategy? And uh, you know, and what what advice might you give uh, a person leading a sales team in this regard? Well. The members of the sales team um, should contribute to the market strategy. Um, I'm not sure they do often enough. Uh, I think there are two reasons for that. Number one is that the information loop in a lot of businesses is not closed. Um, and the information that the salespeople are picking up with respect to the competitors, the market, uh, the competitive products, the channel, uh, that stuff is not as important and doesn't get uh, processed and analyzed as much as what's the value of your pipeline, how many dollars did you sell this week, what is, how many did you close. And so the emphasis is on um, closing business rather than finding. But you know, the, your, your sales force is really your market intelligence spies. And they're out there, and they're out there in larger numbers, and they know, they are basically the equivalent of your the person who's has first observation of the client experience with your product and the client problem. Uh, tapping into that is invaluable. In fact, I'll tell you that the, uh, that the biggest breakthroughs that I've seen with my client have come from uh, not external market research, but rather uh, an analysis of the current sales. So training your sales force to know what to look for what the symptoms are of breakthrough opportunity. You know, it, it, let's go back to the military strategy. If, if you come on the, if you're the general and you come on the front line, the first thing that you need to know is you need to know what the situation is. You need to know the disposition is of the enemy. Same thing as competition. You need to know the disposition and strengths of your own force, which is your value quotient and your channel. So you need to know all of these things. And the salespeople are the people that can really help you understand that better than anyone else. If a, if a scout comes back and tells you that they, they got into a, a little bit of a firefight and killed a number of the enemy, that's okay, I guess. Uh, but if they come back and say that there's a huge enemy force coming around the right flank and you better do something real quick, you're not going to chastise that person for not uh, attacking the enemy and, and creating some casualties and some trouble. What you're going to do is you're going to say thank you. That's a very valuable piece of information. You may have saved all of our butts. Do you do you find that companies, uh, organizations, uh, use their salespeople in that way? I mean, no. yeah. Do you want a longer answer? No, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> okay. So, how do, just out of curiosity, how do you coach your clients to get to help them get their sales team? Uh, through, through example, really, through example. Uh, one of the things that we do is we attempt as much as possible to uh, to capture the the dialogue that goes on when a salesperson is meeting with a customer in something that we call a discussion summary, and the dis we train the salespeople to uh, to look for certain things and to follow up on questions, and those discussion summaries become a real good source of raw information. So, uh, so Jerry, you've worked with uh, many clients. Uh over time, um, 
can you want to share a success story or something that you know you went in and uh... yeah i can i can talk about two one um has to do with focus of uh, an innovation and the second has to do with a bad channel strategy the first one i was giving a lecture um at a high-tech breakfast here a number of years ago uh, on the adoption of innovation and emphasizing the importance of creating a foothold by focus and uh, the CEO and CFO of a small company came up to me and afterwards and asked that um, to, to visit with me and they said that they were arguing all the time about where to focus or whether they should and they were stalled and they were just not getting the traction they needed. Well, uh, the very first thing that I did when I engaged with them is I asked them uh, what markets had the highest value quotient, was receiving the highest value quotient. Well, that was a concept they really weren't weren't um, attuned to, but very in a very short period of time, and I'm talking about less than 90 days, they discovered that they had one customer, one single customer, that had been a customer for, oh, I don't know, six months, something like that, and that that customer was getting such an enormous economic value quotient from the product, and when they asked that, um, that customer why, he explained that there were 25,000 customers like him across the country and that none of them had any solution that worked as well as this and that there were regulatory requirements saying that they needed a solution and all of the factors were in place. Not only that, but it turned out that these people uh, regionally got together, the owners of these businesses regionally got together and shared best practices quarterly in what they call 20 groups. Well, this was a no-brainer. And I said, well, why don't you just redirect your assets and your market focus and attention on this one segment? Well, they did without spending any money. In fact, they had to spend, they spent less money than they were in the past on marketing. And uh, they grew from 1,000, uh, from one to 1,000 locations wow. uh, of success in about a year and a half. Yeah. So, so. Is that just a matter of maybe not having the right knowledgeable people on the team involved in it, or is it uh, maybe is it just centered focus that they just didn't see what was really out there? If that's a well, it was, if that question was, makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. Um, You're not going to charge me for answering that question, right? No, okay. I'm not going <laughs> to. It, it was a combination. They didn't have a tool to process the information they had and they didn't know where to look for the information they had. And it was right under their nose. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, but, it, but it was simple. I mean, it was simple to say, okay, here's where you look for the information. Here's what you look for. Here's the tool you use to determine exactly the value of that information, and then do what it tells you, right? It's, mm-hmm. It was that simple. <laughs> Let me give you the second story was uh, a distribution channel story where I was asked to look at a business that was about to be shut down, And when I talked to the product manager, I asked him what his uh, strategy was. And he said, well, we're getting out uh, and uh, setting up as many distributors as we can. And I've given my administrator a book that I call the Flogging Book. That's F-L-O-G-G-I-N-G, Flogging. And once a week, I've asked her to call these distributors and flog them for orders. (laughs) How How is that working for him? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. But by doing some analysis of, of kind of what we call a where sold analysis, we found that there were three markets that, were, um, that had bought it in any meaningful way. One was hospitals, one was financial institutions, and the other was semiconductor clean rooms. 
And he thought, oh, what do they have in common? Well, they were all space constrained. Further analysis and visit of a couple of customers uh, asked the question about the value quotient, discovered that the hospitals were um, getting the highest value quotient. And by refocusing that business, to make a long story short, they went from two to 150 hospitals. But here's really the kicker in this story. Up to this point in time, that product manager had been begging with the general manager to be able to reduce prices below a certain number, being convinced that that was going to, to break the demand curve. And uh, it turns out that once the hospital got the product, it didn't do quite everything they wanted, and so they kept asking for added features. The average selling price was never taken below $1,000. The price actually went up to $4,000 because of all of the extra features that were being requested. Not only that, the largest single orders to a hospital at the beginning of this exercise was about $20,000, and the largest order when we got through with it was over a million dollars. Wow. So two to 150 hospitals, 22,000 to a million dollars, and a price increase of 4X. Now, that is the value of knowing how to extract value quotient information from the, from the data that's already exists in most of these, uh, mm -hmm. most of these companies. It's, ama it's amazing, and this is for another podcast, but would like to have a discussion on why dropping the price seems to be the, the e you know, for some people, the easy thing to do. <laughs> Hey, so, so I've invited you in. You've come in and worked with my company to help develop a, a market strategy. And we know there's nothing perfect on the earth we live on here. So where might I stumble thinking I can put this uh, plan on cruise control? Hmm. Well, the first stumbling is believe that you can. You can never put a strategy on cruise control. You have to constantly be diligent to understand uh, market maturity, market momentum factors. Um, I'm, I'm going to answer this question a little bit differently, maybe. Uh, there are three, really three reasons why a business succeeds. Um, one is that uh, they're adding capacity to overheated demand. And there are a lot of um, companies that grow very rapidly because they put their boat in a good stream. And they're kind of coasting down the stream along with the other canoes and their competitors. The second one is that they have a unique value proposition. Well, unique value propositions don't last very long because once people see that a company is making or your division is making a product that's profitable and growing and your top line is growing, people uh, kind of imitate it and they will build it. So those are, both those situations are not sustainable. Uh, the rapid overheated demand is not sustainable after a period of time, nor is the unique value proposition. The only thing that, it's, it's kind of like a radioactive half-life. It all kind of collapses into one thing that's most important, and that's differentiation. Mm -hmm. And the differentiation is different at every phase of, of the uh, product maturity. And so you always have to be very, very uh, aware of where you are in terms of the product maturity curve, what, whether, and what is the reason for your success. And that is probably is the biggest thing that most entrepreneurs and business managers miss. They truly don't understand the reason for their success. It's too, let's say, humiliating to admit that, well, I'm just adding capacity to overheated demand, mm -hmm. right? Uh, or to say, um, you know, our unique value proposition is wonderful and it's going to last forever. So to answer your question, you can never put it 
on cruise control. You will can you always have to have your hands on the wheel. Yeah, and so we're getting so constantly gathering information, tweaking or whatever, just, you know, adjusting whatever we need to do. And what that should lead you to is the fragmentation of your own markets to develop unique value propositions for smaller segments of the market, and therefore extract higher returns for those particular subsegments. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the, the topic of our podcast and the title of it has to do with money and where to spend it wisely. So uh, this is a broad question, but where should a company spend its monies when it comes to the market strategy? Well, the question is really better asked as when, not where. Okay. Right? There are many, many uh, places that you can spend, and during the product life cycle, there are many places that you will spend. So it depends on the, the maturity of the product, the, the competitive circumstance, about where. But the important thing is when. In the early stages, the only thing that you should spend money on is uh, assuring that the value quotient has merit and proving it by testing it in some target markets. That very quickly will reveal where the value quotient is higher. And remember, there are four parts to that. It's not only economic, it's emotional, political, and physical. And by doing that, uh, you get a huge return for a very minimal investment. Uh, you should uh, resist the, the urge to, to blast, to blast money on the problem. That's, that's not the right thing. Certain unique circumstances um, might suggest that that's the right thing. I don't know if you remember the early days of AOL where they were blasting and they wanted to get subscribers, subscribers, subscribers because there was an enormous amount of market momentum. Well, what happened was they lost the differentiation very quickly when the market slowed down and it started to get more saturated. So the answer is, at the front end, only spend on validating the value proposition and optimizing the, um, the product or the service in such a way that it delivers value, uh, a, a good value quotient. And the second part of that is, uh, you shouldn't say spend, you should say invest. Because what you ought to look at it is not, uh, you should look at it as a real, um, a real payback analysis, the way you would if it were a piece of manufacturing equipment. So it's when, not where, and invest, not spend. Okay. And you always spend money on the value quotient. That's the first place to spend or invest on the value quotient and testing. Okay. Hey, so in uh, closing, uh, please give our uh, listeners three keys or more when it comes to develop their market strategy. What, what takeaways would you like our uh, listing audience to uh, uh, remember about this? Well, the very first one is if you didn't understand anything I said, uh, if any of the listeners didn't understand anything I've said so far because I used too many marketing terms, um, the first thing you ought to do is look for a target market with some natural momentum. Uh, you can be uh, completely incompetent, know nothing about marketing, like the swimmer who's uh, strapped to a log. If you're in a good market with some momentum, That'll cover a lot of sins. For crying out loud, if you're in a canoe with enough momentum, the whole team could be rowing backwards and no one would know, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the very first thing is, is get that market right and validate that it's got positive momentum. The second thing is don't just develop the product or service alone. Don't be so proud of this little widget that you have in front of you that it becomes the complete focus. You need to develop all components of the value proposition. 
the emotional part is really important too. You know, they say that people um, uh, make their decision based on motion, uh, emotion, not on specifications, but they spend all of their attention on specifications. And particularly in high tech, people can get so enamored with the fact that it is 50 gigahertz faster than the nearest competitor, but in the end, they're going to uh, buy based on trust. They're going to buy, buy based on reliability. They're going to buy based on everything else. 50 gigahertz is nice, and it might, might be essential, but you have to have these other components, the emotional component, political component, and the physical component as well. And then the third thing is, and it's probably even more important than the second thing, is to test. Test the value quotient. Test it with real salespeople, real customers. Um, you can spend a lot of money in, um, what do they call those things where they interview people in the room? Focus groups. Focus groups. Yeah. Boy, I guess. There goes the brain. Um, focus groups. And uh, be, it, it's not a natural environment. And as Drucker said, give me time with the customer in the, in the natural environment. And I can perceive not only the conscious and explicit needs they say they have, but I can also interpret and look at the implicit and subconscious needs by the circumstance they're in. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get a real innovation, it's by tapping into the subconscious and the implicit needs as opposed to the explicit and conscious needs. Okay, very good. Hey, so uh, we're out of time for today. I uh, really appreciate Jerry Vieira coming uh, on board with us today to shed some insights and advice on developing a market strategy. Uh, certainly hope that this helps you and your business. Um, Jerry, where's the best place people can, can find you? They can uh, go to the website at uh, www.theqmpgroup.com. And uh, if you want to look at uh, Jerry Vieira on LinkedIn, between the website and LinkedIn, you'll find a lot of blog posts and articles which explain in more detail these concepts. And I hope that they serve the purpose for which I came into this business, is to help companies succeed. Okay. And you can also find the same information, uh, a link to those uh to, to his website and his LinkedIn profile on our website, uh, clouseronbusiness.com. Hey, well, be sure to tell your friends about us. We're on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, CastBox, Downcast, and always at clouseronbusiness.com. All for now, you've been listening to Clouser on Business.